Good morning, ladies. My name is Julie Bruce, and I've been coming to Habits around 20 years. Um, I just, my kids were in preschool and elementary school, that's about all I remember. Um, and I saw the banner outside, um, and I asked my husband, oh, I couldn't go to church on the east, my church was on the east side, I'm sorry. <laughs> My husband walked in. It kind of distracted me. <laughs> we went to the church on the east side of Indianapolis, so I couldn't get back and forth. So I saw the banner outside, and I asked my husband, who grew up here in Zionsville, what he thought, and he said, this is a solid church with good people, so you should sign up. So I brought um, several of my neighbors, and they were kind enough to squish us all into the same group that year. Um, I just want to thank you for listening and for grace. It's a privilege and honor to be speaking here today. I'm giving my first lecture this morning <laughs> to adults. <laughs> I'd like to pray before we get started. I just thank you, Lord, for what you want to do in my heart, in the women's hearts who are here today. I pray, Lord, that the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth will be pleasing to you. In your name I pray, amen. So 25 years ago, I was a newer Christian, and this stay-at-home mom was so excited when my 18-month-old daughter started taking naps. I was also pregnant, <laughs> so I knew that I would be able to rest and eat and um, read the Bible. And I wasn't sure where to start, so I prayed, and I just felt like God was telling me to read the Old Testament. So I read the first five books of the Bible three or four times in a row, <laughs> and then I was like, can I stop reading that now? And um, I felt like he was telling me to read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. And I also read those a few times through. <laughs> And then he led me to the book of Hebrews. And I was so excited to see the shadows of the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament. There are many people and their stories in the Bible, but the Bible is actually about God and his plans. It's his story for the world and humanity and how we fit into that story. And his plans will not be thwarted. So let's look at where we have been so far in 1 Samuel. In Kathy's overview in our first week, she reminded us of the cycle of the people of Israel throughout Scripture. In the book of Judges that comes before 1 and 2 Samuel, it's very easy to see this pattern. They forget God and turn to idols. They do what is right in their own eyes. Their enemies come and attack them. They turn back to God, and after a while, they repeat this cycle again. In our second week, Candace did a good job of introducing to us some of the main characters in 1 Samuel and their family lines. In her talk, she showed us how Hannah honored God more than anyone else as she prayed to the Lord in a way that reflects how James tells us to pray in the New Testament. The NIV translation of James 5.16 says, 
the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This was evidence as Candace taught us that Hannah's countenance changed before her circumstances changed. The next week, Cinda reminded us that God is holy, holy, holy. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, there are living creatures that surround God's throne. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And she also taught us that studying the Old Testament is important because God's harshness, as perceived in the Old Testament, is actually because of his holiness. Then Mimi told us that life is good when God is king and reminded us that in chapter 7, Samuel sacrificed a lamb for the sins of all the people. And this was a foreshadowing of Christ, as we can see in John chapter 1, verse 29, where when John sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And last week, we learned from Teresa that to go your own way like Saul and be stripped of God's word is to be truly open to destruction. She reminded us that it is out of the abundant love that Jesus lavishes us from his death on a cross that causes us to obey, as the book of 1 John describes in chapter 2. In studying chapters 1 through 13, I hope that as you've answered the application questions, you've been able to see God working out his plan for your life as well. Reading chapters 14 and 15, you may have found there an action-packed couple of chapters that could be a little depressing. (laughs) There's the threat of death and betrayal, the death of animals and eating of those animals raw, the death of a nation, the death of a kingdom, and kidnapping, and more death. But I'm hoping that as you read and studied these chapters, you were able to discern God's redemptive plan for life instead of death. And the good news is that in chapter 16, our next chapter, we get to meet David, God's anointed king, whose kingly family line will result in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's deliverer, who will save not only Israel, but the world, including you and me. As these chapters are filled with many events, I'm going to focus on the end of chapter 15. So let's take out our Bibles, and I'm going to read starting at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, 
they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And on down to 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So in this passage of scripture, we find something puzzling. The word regret is used four times in chapter 15 in the ESV. This can seem confusing because in verse 11, God says to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And in verse 29, Samuel says to Saul, And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And in verse 35 says, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We need to remember that we are looking at the English translations of the Bible that were originally written in Hebrew. And in most languages, a word has more than one meaning depending on the context. For example, if you're in Spain and you order a torta at a restaurant, you might get a sweet cake for dessert or you might get an egg and potato dish. But you need to be careful how you use the word because it also means a slap in the face. (laughs) 
So let's look at the definition of the Hebrew word used in these verses. The Hebrew word is nechem, N-A-C-H-A-M. As you can see, this word has many meanings. So how does it make sense in the context of chapter 15? In verses 11 and 35, depending on the version of the Bible, the words regret and grieved are used interchangeably. And the King James uses the word repent. In verse 29, out of the versions that I looked at, the phrase change his mind seems to be used most frequently. So let's reword these phrases. I am grieved that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And in verse 35, it says, And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. The definition that I love most is to breathe strongly. Think about when we see our children or a friend do something that is not only against God and his commands, but we know the decision will call them, cause them harm. We nechem. We take a big sigh. We grieve. And we console ourselves because we know that there are unpleasant consequences ahead for them. God's plan was to lead Saul, to have Saul lead the kingdom in the destruction of the enemies of the Lord. But instead, God had to destroy Saul's kingdom because he is a just and holy God. In chapter 13, God is just by stopping the kingly line of Saul with Saul himself and handing the kingdom over to a man after the Lord's own heart. And in chapter 15, after a seemingly second chance to obey, the Lord rejects Saul as king and will tear the kingdom away from him. How did Saul get to this point? He was the Lord's first anointed king of Israel. He was followed into battle and had great victories. But as we just recalled in chapter 13, verse 13, Saul was told that his kingdom would not endure, and the Lord had already chosen a man after his own heart. And twice the Lord said through Samuel, because you have not kept the Lord's command. The Lord had already determined that the kingly line would not go through Saul's lineage. And in chapter 15, Saul sealed his fate by disobeying a direct commandment of the Lord. He refused to completely destroy the Amalekites. The NIV Bible study introduction to 1 Samuel says, By establishing kingship in the context of covenant renewal, Samuel placed the monarchy in Israel on a radically different footing than in surrounding nations. The king in Israel was not to be autonomous in authority and power. Rather, he was to be subject to the law of the Lord and the word of the prophet. The king was to be an instrument of the Lord's rule over his people, and the people, as well as the king, were to continue to recognize the Lord as their ultimate sovereign. So let's look at Saul's reaction to this heart-wrenching prophecy given to him in chapter 13, that his kingdom would not continue with his own family. So in chapter 14, Saul jumps back into war, and apparently this is a place where he feels pretty comfortable as a warrior. But as a leader, he now must not feel as comfortable because he keeps a safe distance from the battle. His leadership as king was supposed to be in tandem with Samuel, the Lord's chosen priest and prophet. 
Saul chooses his own priest, now that Samuel will no longer intercede for him. Interestingly enough, this is not just a priest, but a cursed priest. In chapter 4, verse 3, we see that Saul has chosen Ahijah, son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. It would seem the author wants to make it clear that this is the cursed priestly house of Eli. We can tell this is the case because he does not just use his name. He states his lineage. And even in Jewish culture today, lineage equals legitimacy. This man, Ahijah, was no longer considered a high priest in God's eyes because he was under the curse of God given by two prophecies in chapter 2 and 3 of 1 Samuel. Matthew Henry's NIV commentary of 1 Samuel describes it this way. It is common for those who have lost the substance of a religion to be most fond of the shadows of it, as here is a deserted prince courting a deserted priest. Saul decides to use this priest to make decisions to show the appearance of following God. Saul trying to look religiously good is no different than us coming to church on Sunday and participating in service the way we're supposed to, but not honoring God with the intent to worship him, to learn more about him, and have fellowship and accountability with other believers. In addition to living however we want the rest of this, the week, it reminds us of how in Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. All of those going through the motions don't make you a Christian, but a personal relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ does. Because God knows your heart the way he knew Saul's. Saul continues to try and look good for the people in his army. He uses this priest in verse 18 to bring the ark of God into battle. Obviously, Saul had ignored what we, he knew and what we know about moving the ark, as we read in chapter 4, and he'd been continually moving it because in verse 19, it says, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. No matter how Saul dishonored God with choosing his own priest and carrying the ark into battle, God's plan was accomplished. Verse 23 says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Saul's next bad decision is based on his own pride in battle, and it causes the people to sin. In chapter 14, verse 24, Saul makes a rash vow that puts the life of his army in jeopardy and ultimately the life of his son, Jonathan. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged on my enemies. In Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says, This is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but he must do everything he said. After victory in battle, we see in verse 32 that the people are so hungry that they slaughter and eat animals raw on the ground. Saul actually acknowledges that this was against God's law. 
we can read about the prohibition of eating or drinking blood in Leviticus 17 and also in your lesson, I believe it was 14. So Saul slaughters and cooks what was left on a great stone and then performs another act to look good. He builds an altar. And verse 35 says it was the first altar he'd ever built to the Lord. This priest, Ahijah, is seemingly trying to follow the Lord. Is it possible after seeing the great sin of the people that he knows that Saul is leading them down an evil path? Think about this priest. He may be a priest, but he's also just a man. And just like Samuel's warnings in chapter 8 of what the king will do to the people, he is also under this threat. And he had to go into the battlefield with Saul. He may have been imprisoned or killed, or his family may have been in jeopardy. He seems to be doing what is best despite the curse and the threat from the king that hangs over his head. I think this may be true because in 36, he convinces Saul to pray. And when Saul does not hear from God, Saul decides that it is a result of the Israelites disobeying Saul's command not to eat food because there was sin in the camp. Saul determines that this sin belongs to someone else, not him. It must be because they have broken his vow not to eat until he has had victory over his enemies. To continue to keep up all appearances, this priest was carrying the Urim and the Thummim in order to make decisions. In verses 38 through 42, these objects are used to cast lots to find the sin in the camp. According to the Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, the terms Urim and Thummim have been traditionally understood as lights. They were a means of revelation entrusted to the high priest. They consisted of a material object or objects since they were physically stored in the breastpiece of the high priest, as seen in Exodus chapter 28 and Leviticus 8. They were used at critical moments in the history of God's people when divine guidance was needed. And the civil leader was expected to make use of this for means of all important matters in which he needed direction. As we read in chapter 14, even though the high priest was not using them, and Saul was casting the lots to find anyone else's sin but his own, the Lord chose Jonathan as the lot was cast on him. It was the Lord's plan for Jonathan's so-called sin to be addressed. There is no way to know God's motivation for choosing Jonathan, but what we do know is that it showed Saul that the army did not agree with Saul's vow and that Jonathan had more backing from the army than his own father did. If you recall earlier, Numbers explicitly said that if a man states a vow, he must do everything he says. And Saul continues to break God's commands by not killing Jonathan. So how did God plan to use this new kingdom to carry out the destruction of his and the Israelites' enemies? Saul, he gives Saul a second chance in chapter 15 by giving him explicit instructions to completely destroy the Amalekites. All living things, 
that belong to them are to be destroyed, humans or otherwise. This is a hard word from the Lord, but if you've ever studied or read Genesis, you may recall the story of Noah, where God asked him to take his family, two of every kind of animal, and leave the rest of the world to destruction by a flood. In asking Saul to do this, it wouldn't be the first time that God had asked a servant of his to carry out a command like this. But why the Amalekites? We first see God's plan for the Amalekites in Exodus 17. Amalek comes out to fight Israel, seemingly unprovoked, but obviously threatened by them as they move towards the promised land through the Amalekite land. At the end of this battle, God proclaims to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. For sure, the Lord's plan would not be thwarted. Even though Saul disobeys this command to destroy the Amalekites, nine centuries later, God would still use a Benjaminite to carry out his plan. In Esther chapter 3, we read of Haman's plot to destroy the Jewish people who were in exile in Babylon after the Israelite kingdom had ended. Haman is described as Haman the Agagite, or son of Agag. As we have already studied in Samuel, to be a son of also means to be a descendant of. And Haman is a son of Agag, the very king that Samuel had to kill because Saul wouldn't. Who is this Benjaminite that carries out God's plan? He is Mordecai, the uncle of Queen Esther. Mordecai is introduced in chapter 2 of Esther as a Jew in the citadel of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. The intentionality by the author to state his lineage is apparent with Saul's father Kish mentioned. Mordecai tells Esther to ask her husband, the Persian king, under the threat of death, to stop the plot of Haman. There is a reversal that happens in chapter 9, where Haman is stopped and ultimately all of the Amalekites left and their allies are destroyed by the Jewish people. The history of the Israelites' war with the Amalekites ends in chapter 9, and the scripture says, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. God's plan to destroy the Amalekites would not be thwarted. The introduction to the book of Esther in the NIV Study Bible says, throughout much of the story of Esther, the author calls to mind the ongoing conflict of Israel with the Amalekites. As the first to attack Israel after their deliverance from Egypt, the Amalekites were viewed as the epitome of all the powers of the world arrayed against God's people. With Haman's defeat, the Jews enjoy rest from their enemies. Saul, after he learned from Samuel that his disobedience by not being patient and making his own sacrifice in chapter 13 does not change his ways. 
He had his own plans, and he continued to make choices that benefited him and not God, not Samuel or the Israelites. He chose his own priest. He carried the ark of God wherever he went, and he makes a rash vow, and he has this cursed priest use the Urim and Thummim to make decisions. After the second chance that God had given Saul to be his servant by killing the Amalekites and carrying out God's plans, it was clear to the Lord that Saul could no longer be king. So what does this mean for you and me? The Lord is a just God, and nothing will stop him from completing his plans for the world. Not even our sin. In the introduction to 1 Samuel, the Moody Bible Commentary states, From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is designed to reveal God and his glory. For this overarching glory of God, two great parallel themes develop, the kingdom program and the redemption program, from Genesis 3.15 to eternity. God is also immutable. He is unchanging. He must do what he says he's going to do, and he must punish sin. He is holy and cannot have sin in his presence. So what can we learn from what we know about the earthly king Saul and the Israelite kingdom? That there is no, will there ever be a perfect human king or a perfect person on this earth. We cannot just follow the rules of God or religion and hope that that is enough for us to make up for our own sin. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 24 say, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And Colossians chapter 1 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Jesus Christ, the perfect one, came to earth to be the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice so that we could be reconciled for God. I accepted this sacrifice 29 years ago this month. He healed my boy. (laughs) He healed my heart. He healed my mind. And in accepting his kingship, I am free and forgiven to love him for the great God he is and his awesome plan from the beginning to save me and all of you from our sins. His sacrifice on the cross has also given me the freedom to love others the way that he loves me. If you don't know Jesus, if you'd like to know more about what it means to have a relationship with him, please talk to one of to either any leader here or your group leader, and they would be happy to talk with you about what it means to have him as your king. Thank you.